Have you ever been carrying on a conversation with somebody and then brought that conversation up a few days later and the way that the other person remembers the conversation is completely different than the way you remember the conversation? Why does that happen? This is all probably a very familiar experience and that's what we're talking about this week is interpersonal communication. What is it about communication between people that can oftentimes lead it to be totally misinterpreted? We are talking about interpersonal communication this week, or how we talk and interact with other individuals. It's a process that one person is sending a message and another person is receiving a message. So let's talk about the specific components or features of the communication process. In the communication process, there are several key elements. There's a sender, and the sender is the person who is giving the message. So if you're talking with a group of friends, you would, and you're the one who's talking, you would be the sender. The receiver is the person that it, the message is intended for. So if you're talking to um, maybe there's five or six of you standing around and you're talking to your best friend about going out, you know, to the movies or, or meeting up at a specific location over the weekend, then that person that you're trying to um, meet up with is the receiver. And then there's the message itself. And the message itself is the information that you are trying to convey to the sender. What is the um, idea that the speaker is trying to get to the person who is supposed to be listening or the intended listener. The channel is referring to uh, the sensory items or the sensory input that is coming. How is how is that receiver receiving the message? So typically, if you're speaking and it's oral communication, the receiver would be sending the message through um, or would be receiving the message through auditory input. Now, there's other things, though, that come into play with um, the channel, and those things are all of the nonverbal cues that we give off, things like our facial expression, our gestures, our eye contact, whether or not you touch a person, the tone of your voice, all of those things kind of factor into that channel, and sometimes it's not just what you're saying, but it's how it's being said. And we're going to talk about how sometimes the channel can interfere with the information as well as other things. The next part of communication is noise. And noise is referring to some of the um, things that are surrounding the message. And these can be things like environmental factors, like loud music or a crowded room. They can be physical factors, such as poor vision or poor hearing. Um, they can also be physiological factors, like um, if somebody is hangry or if somebody has a headache or if somebody's not feeling very well. So all of these things can add up to kind of change how the message is communicated. So if the sender is 
Um, maybe, maybe the sender is hungry and really kind of getting agitated when they're sending a message. And maybe they're saying something simple like, Hey, where do you want to eat? And the receiver's like, Oh, I don't care. But the sender is really getting hungry. The message may come across more as instead of it being, Hey, where do you want to eat? It may come across as, Hey, can you make a decision? I need to know where you want to eat. And so that message is completely different than the message that we heard before. And a lot of it has to do with that noise. Another factor or another element in communication is context. And context is the environment in which that communication is taking place. And context can play a very big role because it can be things like the physical environment, the location, um, the type of conversation, the relationship, and the history that the that the two individuals have, the sender and the receiver. Because if the uh, sender is maybe trying to joke with the receiver, but maybe it's in a location, maybe where they're joking, the you know, or a joke that they're trying to convey to the receiver is in a different setting that may irritate the receiver. Um, it may also be that um, if they have some history and maybe their history has been an on-off history with a relationship and one individual, the um, sender is trying to joke with the receiver, but because of their history, it's not received as a joke. And so there's a lot of different things that can factor in to our communication. Another very important element of communication now is technology and electronically mediated uh, communication, things like cell phones and computers, texting, um, all of that changes a lot of our elements of communication. And it's been one of the things that I've been mentioning throughout this class and encouraging students to make videos because with a video, then we can see your facial expressions. We can pick up on the tone and the inflection in your voice, all of these things that may be lost when we're having written communication. Um, Written communication, whether it's through texting or whether it's through a discussion board or whether it's through an email, oftentimes loses a lot of these elements of communication and leaves um, a big gray area for miscommunication or misinterpretation. And of course, we can't mention electronically mediated communication without talking about social networking sites and privacy and security issues with social networking sites. Um, These are obviously a big Um, part of today's landscape, and especially when it comes to communication. So you want to make sure that you are securing your um, information, particularly when it's in an online environment. Now, as I mentioned, one of the other key factors in communication or one of the key elements in communication is nonverbal communication. Nonverbal communication is um, the message that you're sending through things that you are not saying. So through your body language, through, um, you know, the way that you're um, holding yourself, your facial expressions, all of those things are your nonverbal communication. And so there's a couple of general principles for nonverbal communication. 
The first one is that nonverbal communication conveys emotions frequently times. And so people will pick up on facial expressions and they'll pick up on um, body language that maybe conveys an emotion. And so it's oftentimes you want to make sure that you're conveying the correct emotion. And one of the things for me, this oftentimes is difficult because on campus, it's really, really cold and I'm always cold. So I frequently find myself standing with my arms crossed, which oftentimes conveys a message that I'm angry or upset when in actuality, I'm not, I am just cold. And so I try to find ways to, um, you know, provide warmth to myself without conveying a message that is one that I'm closed off or that I'm angry. And so because being aware of the emotions that our nonverbal communication conveys can oftentimes change um, how the message is sent or how the message is received. The other thing about nonverbal communication is that it's multi-channeled which means that um, there's lots of different ways that we can send a nonverbal communication through our facial expressions, through our gestures, through our eye contact. So there's lots of different messages that can be sent um, through these different channels of nonverbal communication. The third thing is that nonverbal communication is ambiguous. So as I mentioned earlier, um, that non, that the nonverbal communication that I try and work on is making sure that my arms aren't folded or crossed because I'm cold because I don't want it to convey the wrong nonverbal communication. And that's because nonverbal communication can be ambiguous. A shrug or an eyebrow raise may mean different things to other people. Me standing with my arms folded to me means that I'm cold, but to some people it may mean that I'm closed off or that I don't want to talk to them. Nonverbal communication may contradict verbal messages as well. And this is oftentimes um, the power of our nonverbal communication is more powerful than the actual message that is being sent, particularly when people are watching you. So the nonverbal communication may say things like you're not very happy when in actuality what you're saying is you are very happy. So again, we want to be aware of how our nonverbal communication is being received. And then lastly, nonverbal communication is culturally bound. And so it may mean things to different people um, based on the culture and based on um, the norms of that culture. So you want to be aware of that as well. There are some elements of nonverbal communication as well. Um, Elements of nonverbal communication are things like personal space. Um, The study of proxemics is um, just that, how studying people's personal space and how much personal space we allow. And so things like Um, And your personal space is the amount of space that you feel like belongs to you and almost like you have an invisible bubble around you. And they've actually done um, a lot of studies on this. Edward Hall did a famous study on um, the amount of personal space, and he actually was able to track how much personal space individuals afford or want, and it's based on their different levels of um, 
comfort that they have with those individuals. So zone one is intimate distance space or intimate distance zone. And this is a very small space up to about 18 inches. And this would include things like parents and um, intimate partners, spouses, things of that nature. Zone two is personal distance zone, and that's 18 inches to about um, four feet. And this is close friends, um, people that we are close to. You know, you tend to stand a little bit closer to them, maybe even within um, touching range. And then there's zone three, which is social distance space. These are things like coworkers, social gatherings friend situations, things of that nature. And then the last one is zone four, which is public distance space. Of course, this is the most amount of distance space, and we keep a lot of distance space between these people because these are people that we don't know. Now, it also depends on where you're from. Um, you know, I... Um, frequently travel to New York City where I'm on packed subways with complete strangers and they are in a much closer um, personal space than a public distance zone. Um, and so a lot of it also, again, has to do with your situation and that context that we were talking about. The next um, element of nonverbal communication is facial expressions. As we mentioned before, our facial expressions um, convey messages, and some researchers have determined that there are six distinct facial expressions that correspond with six basic emotions, and those are anger, disgust, fear, happiness, sadness, and surprise. And this week, you get an opportunity to kind of test out those facial expressions and how good are you at reading those facial expressions. The next element of nonverbal communication is eye contact. And eye contact conveys two messages um, or includes two components, and they are intensity and the length of time that we spend um, with our eye contact or eye gaze. And the length of time is correlated with intensity, which also is related to um, the type of relationship that we have. We tend to um, stare longer and more intensely uh, with people that we have a very close um, personal community, uh, personal relationship with. The next element of nonverbal communication is body language or the study of kinesthetics, which is body movement. And so again, when we're talking about body um, language, we're talking about things like our posture what kind of posture we um, are holding that may convey an open or kind of relaxing feeling. Or, um, you know, if you're sitting with your arms crossed, you may have more of a negative or defensive gesture. And so again, this is where I refer back to my example in which I try not to convey that body language, even when it may just be that I'm cold, I try to convey a more open and uh, welcoming body language. The other one is hand gestures. Um, hand gestures emphasize a lot of the words and how we're speaking and the tone in which we're speaking. And then the last element of nonverbal communication is touch. Um, touch can come in a lot of different um, ways. And it also tends to be gender-related. Um, women use touch to convey intimacy and closeness, where men use it more in um, social situations of like power. Um, and again, touch really has a lot to do with um, norms, and it also has to do with the closeness of our relationships.
So all of these basics of communication are really important to determining the type of message that we want to send and ensuring that the message that we're sending is being received well or the way that we intended it. But what about lying? Because lying is just that. It is trying to um, persuade somebody to believe a message that maybe, you know, is not necessarily truthful. And we all tell lies. Um, Even though people say all the time, oh, I don't lie, we tell lies like white lies, which we believe are inconsequential. So is it possible to catch somebody in a lie? It is possible, but it's oftentimes very difficult because lying um, is looking at not just the message that's being sent, but it's also looking at a lot of these nonverbal cues. And so oftentimes um, the message, the verbal message that is being sent does not correspond with the nonverbal communication that the individual is portraying. And so liars tend to have some kind of telltale signs, like they tend to blink less. And oftentimes um, liars tend to also have some uh, vocal cues their pitch may change, their answers tend to be relatively short, and they oftentimes um, avoid hesitation. Their stories tend to have very few details in them. And they also, their facial expressions and their body language tend to not correspond with the message that they're sending. If you pay attention, you may be able to pick up on a few of these small nonverbal cues, like oftentimes liars will shift their eyes or um, move their eye contact when they're telling a lie because it requires a little bit more cognitive load or it requires more mental process to lie than it does to tell the truth. And so their eye contact may um, sway. They also, um, when they're lying, their body language may give it away. Their nonverbal cues. So they may say the word no, but they may be nodding their head yes at the same time. And there's all kinds of really interesting um, analyses of these nonverbal cues that you can look at. Um, the polygraph exam was was set up because the idea between behind the polygraph was that the polygraph was going to record fluctuations and physiological changes, meaning heart rate, respiratory rate, things like that, that would change when a person was lying. The only problem is that lie detector exams are not really um, valid, nor are they consistent. Because what we found is that sometimes um, individuals who aren't even lying may experience physiological arousal. That this is the arousal that we talked about earlier in the semester, where their heart rate and their respiratory rate increases just because they're being given a polygraph. And so there's a a very high error rate with polygraph exams or polygraph tests, which is why they're not really admissible in court. So let's shift our attention now into ways that we can become more effective at communicating messages. So almost all communication starts off with small talk. And so we're going to start by 
talking about small talk. And then some other key elements in effective communication is self-disclosure and then being an effective listener. And so we're going to talk about all of these things. So starting with small talk, some of us are really good at small talk. Some of us are not very good at small talk. But um, there are five steps to making small talk successful. The first step is indicate that you're open to conversations. And this is very easy by commenting or attempting to engage a person in a conversation. Maybe when you're standing in line or maybe when you know, you're sitting in the classroom before class starts. This indicates that you're open to small talk. And again, some people may be open to small talk. Some people may not be open to small talk. It also, and thinking back to those um, elements of communication, it may not be that the person is closed off or not interested in carrying on conversation with you, but it may be the situation or the context um, in which this you know, small talk is occurring. If you're having small talk, if you're trying to engage someone in small talk before a uh, class starts, maybe on the first day of class, it may be that this uh, receiver is anxious about class or frustrated about you know their schedule not being aligning, or maybe they just went to the wrong class, and so they may not be willing to engage in small talk in that moment. It's oftentimes um, the case that the message is then not received very well. Maybe the receiver, um, because of their emotional state, Um, doesn't receive the message very well, and maybe they snap back, or maybe they don't respond at all. And so then the sender, um, you who are trying to engage the person in small talk, makes a quick judgment about that person. And so it's oftentimes um, the case where we want to consider all the possibilities. Maybe it's not that this person doesn't want to engage in conversation with you. Maybe they're having a bad day that day. And that's why it's best not to engage in conversation. But you want to indicate that you're open to conversation. You want to introduce yourself. You um, and you know, an introduction includes your name and maybe um, you know, extending your hand, making eye contact. These are all things that um, again kind of convey that willing and open message. And then you want to select topics that others can relate to. Um, So maybe you find something about the other person and find, you know, like, um, hey, oh, I noticed that you've got, you know, um, I'm taking that math class. I've got that same math book or, oh, I've got the same phone case. That's pretty wild. Things like that, that you can engage somebody in conversation. Maybe if they're carrying a book with them, a, um, you know, book that, Maybe you've read or you've read something similar to that, or you can even ask them about the book. Hey, is that a good book that you're reading? Things of that nature. And then you want to keep the conversation ball rolling. So you want to, again, kind of elaborate on your initial topic, maybe what you started with, you know, maybe it was, you know, um, something like, hey, I can't wait to learn more about this class, or um, do you think this instructor is going to be good? You can elaborate on that, or you can change the subject. And then you can make a smooth exit. And making a smooth exit is politely ending the conversation, uh, either um, when you feel like it's a good appropriate time to end the conversation, or when you feel like, um, you know, now it's the time to exit and move on. So those are some of the um, 
basic elements of small talk. Now we're going to talk about self-disclosure because ideally the relationship would progress. You would have small talk multiple times with an individual that you're just meeting, and then eventually the conversation would move into self-disclosure. Now, the key to moving into self-disclosure is that you're sharing information with another person that's personal information. But you want to make sure that you have had multiple conversations because you don't want to self-disclose to strangers as that may send a message um, that is not received appropriately. So you want to make sure that after an important amount of time or after an um, amount of time that involves you know feeling like you're connected to this person, feeling like you shared a lot of small talk and that they've become an acquaintance, that now it's time that you can kind of progress it into um, self-disclosure. And self-disclosure is revealing that personal information. But it may not be some deep, dark secret. It can be, um, typically we start with um, kind of a lower level of so self-disclosure, maybe disclosing some private information um, in a general way or some private information that isn't, you know, deep, dark secrets, but things like um, maybe about your views on a subject matter like politics or your views on religion or um, your views on uh, maybe jealousy or something of that nature. And as we disclose more to an individual, self-disclosure self will become much more focused and much more personal to the point where really the self-disclosure is then the most deep self-disclosure is being reserved for best friends and people that you feel like you have a very close, intimate relationship with. Now, keep in mind, nonverbal communication plays a very important role in self-disclosure. The um, nonverbal communication that you are sending, as well as the nonverbal communication that you're receiving. And so you want to make sure that the, the nonverbal communication that you're sending is consistent with the message that you're sending as well. Um, oftentimes, when we get nervous or anxious about self disclosure, our nonverbal communication that is being sent is different than the message and conflicts with the message that we're sending. And so, again, nonverbal communication really involves, um, or nonverbal, the self-disclosure really involves nonverbal communication as well as com communication and ensuring that you have developed some kind of relationship with this person um, prior to self-disclosure. And one of the key elements in self-disclosure is listening. Listening and hearing are two distinct processes. We can hear things, meaning that that stimulus or that sound wave comes into our eardrums, but we may not listen. We may not mindfully engage or mindfully hear everything that somebody is saying. And you can see this oftentimes where people are just responding and they're going, yeah, uh-huh, yeah but you haven't really heard or you haven't really listened to anything that the person has said, even though you're hearing it and you're able to respond. And so effective communication also includes effective listening. And there are 
Um, there's a lot of truth that goes with we have two ears and only one mouth, and that's that we should listen more than we speak. Because the process of listening requires actually in taking in the message. And for a lot of people, when they're listening, they're actually formulating what they are going to say next. And this is not an active means of listening. You want to make sure that as a good listener, there's four things that you want to keep in mind. First, signal to your listen, signal to the speaker that you're interested by using nonverbal cues. Things like those facial expressions and posture, making eye contact, all of these things send a message that you're interested and that you're engaged. Again, and when we're talking about this self-disclosure, think about for a minute, if you have all this anxiety about sharing something about yourself that maybe you don't want everybody else to know. And so you feel like you're at a point in a time or in this relationship that you can share that information. And then the person isn't even making eye contact or worse yet. Nowadays, they're playing on their phone. The message, the nonverbal message that they're sending to you is that they're not interested in what you have to say. And then that's going to make you feel like you're rejected which is oftentimes going to make you feel defensive then. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Second is hear the person out before you respond. So hear everything that they have to say before you respond. And this includes, um, you know, like we just mentioned, listening to their whole message and not trying to formulate your argument or your rebuttal. We are very quick thinkers and we don't need to be formulating our rebuttal while somebody else is speaking. We need to hear everything out. The third one is engage in active listening. Pay attention to what they are saying. Clarifying phrases and paraphrasing is a great way to do this. So oftentimes repeating what they have said is a really good way to engage in active listening. So when the speaker is done, you may say something like, well, what I heard you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is... And then you go into some of their main points. And that's a really good way of being an active listener. And then finally, paying attention to the person's nonverbal signals, because this also plays a big part. And again, oftentimes when their um, nonverbal communication doesn't correspond with the message that they're sending, particularly if it's self-disclosure, it may be because they're anxious. And so you may say something like, it's okay, I understand because I've been in that situation, let me make sure that you know I understand what you're saying. It sounds like maybe you're a little bit anxious about sharing this information, and that's okay. And so these are some of the things um, that kind of factor into being a more effective listener, which will also help your communication skills. One of the other things that we need to point out is just that, compre- uh, communication apprehension. Communication apprehension is the anxiety that people feel when they talk to other people. And this also t- um, is not just with self-disclosure, but it can also come when you're talking in front of groups or even when people are talking one-on-one. And so there's some ways, some responses um, to comprehension um, or to communication apprehension. And some of these are um, avoidance. People may respond to communication apprehension by just avoiding it. And um, 
Then the next one is withdrawing, withdrawing or not engaging. Um, in addition, so like when somebody starts to engage in it, they may withdraw. Um, disruptions and overcommunication. Um, disruption is also a way that um, can really kind of shut down communication apprehension. And then overcommunication, or when one person is dominating the conversation, that's another way to, that really um, communication apprehension comes out. And we see this oftentimes with people who are anxious um, and they say that they may get, you know, verbal diarrhea when they're anxious about engaging with other people. And so instead of um, not saying anything, they become very, very talkative because they want to fill that silent space. And these are kind of those responses that people have to that communication apprehension. And so recognizing that it may actually be a sign that they're anxious or it may be a sign of anxiety can also help to increase your communication skills. Now, there are some key barriers to communication uh, or barriers to effective communication. There's really three things that will shut down effective communication very quickly. The first one is defensiveness. Defensiveness, now obviously we all um, have an opportunity in which we may become defensive, um, but defensiveness is, or excessive defensiveness, is a key way to uh, diminish effective communication. And this is when the concern is really placed on protecting oneself from being hurt. And so everything that the person communicates or when the person is in a communication situation, they are excessively defensive. And you see this oftentimes in relationships that have had damage or hurt or um, withdraw in which one person may be attempting to restore the relationship where another person is excessively defensive because they've been hurt. And so because they're excessively defensive, everything is going to be, um, the message is oftentimes going to be misconstrued because the individual is focused on ensuring that they are not getting hurt again. And so that will eliminate effective communication very quickly. The next one is ambushing. And ambushing is when, as we were just talking about, um, the listener, instead of listening, is actually formulating their um, opportunity to attack the speaker or formulating their um, argument. And this happens frequently in um, when people are arguing is that instead of um, listening to the actual message, they're formulating their rebuttal or their attack. And so they're eliminating that effective listening, and that's going to just create more barriers to effective communication. And then the last one is self-preoccupation. And even when we're not in conflict, we've all engaged in self-preoccupation. And self-preoccupation is when uh, you're kind of pseudo-listening to somebody, and then at the moment that there's a pause, you interject something that might be completely unrelated um, to what the person is saying, or you may actually even unintentionally be hijacking the conversation by saying, oh, that's absolutely nothing. Listen to what happened to me yesterday. And that, again, is that kind of self-preoccupation. When we're putting ourselves first and what happened, 
in an effort to try and relate sometimes, but other times it's not even in an effort to try and relate, but it's self-preoccupation. If you're telling somebody, you know, and especially if you're self-disclosing information about yourself, Maybe you decided recently to go back to school and you're very apprehensive about this. So you decided not to share it with a lot of people. Um, you want to see what school's like first. You want to take a couple classes. You want to make sure that you're, it's going to be able to be something that you can handle. And you finally get the um, nerve to disclose this information to a friend and you say, hey, you know, I've decided to go back to school. And the first thing that they say is, oh my gosh, I was thinking about the same thing. And then they start talking about what their dreams and their plans were. That's that self-preoccupation, which shuts down effective communication. Because in that instance, it took a lot of nerve and it took, you had a lot of, um, you know, communication apprehension about discussing this with the person and here you're sharing a self-disclosure and instead of bringing it closer and building on that relationship, you've kind of shut down that communication because you've maintained or you've shifted the focus back to yourself. And this can oftentimes lead to interpersonal conflict. And when we're talking to in, talking about interpersonal conflict, we're just talking about that when two or more people disagree. And this may be a disagreement over um, something silly like misconstrued communication, or it may be a disagreement over um, a problem or something um, that occurred. And so when we deal with interpersonal Um, conflict, we've kind of revealed there's five distinct patterns for dealing with conflict. And these are avoiding withdrawing, accommodating, competing forcing, compromising, and collaborating. And these five different distinct patterns reside on two different dimensions. So the dimension is interest in oneself and your own concerns or interest in satisfying the other's concern. And so they kind of move along these dimensions, and I encourage you to check out the picture that is in figure 8.8 in your textbook so that you can see how they kind of align with the two different dimensions. When we have a concern for ourself, the two um, main, when our concern for ourself is higher, the two main styles that we engage in are competing forcing and collaborating. And so competing or forcing is just that. When the um, receiver or the individual turns everything into a conflict uh, and turns everything into a competition, black and white, winner and loser, And you can see that in these types of situations, it's exhausting. Nobody wants to be in a relationship with somebody who is constantly competing or when the communication, when the message is constantly a um, one of conflict and resentment because they're trying to win that conversation. The second one that resides high on the um, concern for self is collaborating. And collaborating, which again is a high concern for self, but it also includes a high concern for others. So it's a high concern for self, but high concern for others is when compromising um, is kind of like 
uh, splitting the difference, collaborating involves an effort to find a solution where both parties are satisfied. Um, and so we're going to work together to find a mutual um, resolution to a problem. And so this is a high concern for self and a high concern for other people. Now, on the flip side, looking at concern for others, a concern, a low concern for self and a low concern for others is avoiding and withdrawing. And so people um, who avoid or withdraw, they are just going to completely shut down. And whenever conflict emerges, they're just going to avoid it. And this is, they're oftentimes deflect. Maybe they deflect with humor or they make a nasty exit or something of that nature. And that's because they have a low um, concern for themselves and a low concern for other people. Now, when you have a low concern for yourself, but you have a high concern for others, then you're going to engage in accommodating. And accommodating, it, um, the accommodator oftentimes feels uncomfortable with the conflict. And so instead of ignoring the disagreement, they're going to um, bring the conflict to a quick end by just accommodating to the other person. They're going to give in. And so they're just going to be like, yes, whatever. Um, and oftentimes they, it creates feelings of resentment because that's not truly how they feel, but they just want to end the conflict. And so they're going to accommodate to the other person or give in. Obviously in the middle is compromising and compromising is moderate concern for self and moderate concern for others. And with compromising, it's an approach to conflict in which both parties, um, there's a need for both parties to kind of willingly negotiate and each person comes halfway or each person compromises um, in their argument and they come to a resolution where both people um, feel satisfaction because they're walking away with a constructive end to the conflict um, and gaining something out of it, um, but maybe not gaining everything out of it. And so these are some of the, uh, like I said, the five um, effective ways or the five ways in which we can deal with conflict. Obviously, some of them are a little bit more effective than other ones. And so we'll look at some dealing um, with conflict, how we can kind of constructively deal with conflict. And there's some specific guidelines to effectively dealing with interpersonal conflict. First is making conversations or making communication open and honest. When you withhold or avoid um, conflict, it's not really going to achieve anything. So looking back to those five um, ways that we can deal with conflict, when we just accommodate, we are not being open and honest, and that's going to harbor resentment. Use specific behaviors and habits rather than generalizations. So when you're communicating with other individuals, instead of saying, making generalizations like this always happens, use specific examples. I really don't like it when you attack me, or I really don't like it when you use that language with me. So we want to make sure that we're identifying specific behaviors. When we're in conflict with individuals, our emotions become central. And so it's very easy to make these general, broad, sweeping statements, but that's not very effective. 
And then the next one is avoid loaded words. Loaded words are our trigger words. And again, when we are, um, when we're in these situations, when our emotions become very paramount in, um, you know, conflict, we oftentimes throw out name calling or loaded words that are just going to trigger the other person. And that again is not effective because once you throw out those words, it's kind of like ambushing and then the person is going to move into a defensive mode. And so now you have just commute, then you have just shut down all effective communication. The next one is use a positive approach to help others kind of save face, um, approaching things like in a positive manner. I really love how we do these things together. I really love how, um, you know, uh, I don't know, you, you help out around the house, things of that nature. You also want to limit complaints um, to the recent behaviors and uh, you want to limit the complaints that you have about the recent behavior to just current situations. So you don't want to be drudging up every time that they've exhibited that behavior because then that's really, you're just uh, ambushing the person and they're going to become defensive. So you want to limit it to this specific situation in this moment, I, you know, really didn't like how the way you never, you didn't return my um, phone call. I don't like how, you know, I asked you a specific question. You didn't answer the question. You want to talk about it in that moment instead of saying you never return my phone calls. Um, So again, kind of making it that specific. You also want to assume responsibility for your own feelings and your own preferences. So instead of saying things like, you make me mad, um, you may want to say like, I'm angry. And that acknowledges that you're not only angry about this situation, but you may be angry about, you know, other things, Um, you know, and again, looking at this specific behavior, saying things like, I'm angry that you left the dishes in the sink this time. Um, instead of saying, you know, it always makes me mad when you leave the dishes in the sink, acknowledging your feelings in that situation and then using assertiveness, assertiveness. Um, and we're going to talk more about effective, assertive communication, but effective, assertive communication, um, is really kind of, um, a way to kind of head off and deal with this um, conflict before it becomes um, overwhelming or before it turns into something that is including lots of different behaviors. So we're going to move on and talk about assertive communication. Now, assertive communication sometimes gets a negative uh, connotation because people misconstrue assertiveness with aggressiveness. But assertiveness is acting in one's own best interest, but also looking at um, the interest of other people and conveying directly and honestly. And so assertive communication is getting and saying what one wants um, at but not necessarily, um, but not at the expense of other people. Aggressive communication is at the expense of other people, where assertiveness is really um, standing up for your own self-interest, however, also acknowledging the rights of others and the right of other people around you. And so assertiveness is really 
advocating for your own rights while you're also considering and acknowledging other people's rights. So you want to make sure that you're aware of your surroundings and aware of the rights of other people around you. And so things like um, asserting yourself and saying, you know, like if you're maybe we'll say at a restaurant and your order wasn't, um, and your order wasn't prepared correctly, that can be done in an assertive but not aggressive manner. In this instance, you would um, address um, being open and honest, gee, I really don't like this. Um, This wasn't what I ordered. Um, But maintaining some a positive aspect and not attacking the person or not saying things like, you screwed up my order, take it back. Assertiveness is um, adopting a positive attitude so that you can advocate for yourself. Uh, I understand that you're really busy here tonight. This wasn't exactly what I ordered, and I'd really uh, appreciate if, um, you know, I can have it prepared in the way that I asked for it to be prepared. And so that is assertive communication. And assertive communication, we can practice in a lot of different ways in a lot of different settings. And when we practice assertive communication, and and as long as the assertive communication is honest and direct, again, looking at not attacking the person, but uh, um, addressing what it is that you don't like. Gee, I don't like it when my salad is prepared this way. Um, I specifically asked for it to be prepared a different way. Is it possible that I can have it prepared that way? Or when you're dealing with people that you live with, because oftentimes that's where we engage in the most interpersonal conflict is people that we live with. Because there's lots of, again, other things that factor into those messages. And it may be that you know, you're tired and exhausted. Those physiological things factor in. And so instead of jumping to, you always act this way, we address the um, issue, the nonverbal communication. You know, it sounds like you're really tired and maybe it'd be better off if you went and got some sleep and we discuss this in the morning. Or I understand that you're really tired. So even though it bothers me that you don't do the dishes, um, I'm going to not, you know, talk about it today. But maybe tomorrow you could do the dishes, and if they're still there tomorrow afternoon, then maybe we have to have a conversation about this. So there's some ways that we can be assertive without attacking or being aggressive. And I encourage you to um, really think about um, the things that we've talked about with effective communication, because a lot of our communication is being lost and misconstrued, and I think a lot of arguments and interpersonal conflict is because we're not fully engaging in conversations with people. We are not uh, listening to their nonverbal communication. We're not putting down our phones enough to pay attention and be good listeners. And these are just creating more barriers to effective communication. And so I encourage you to really think about those barriers to effective communication and how many we're engaging in. Because if we can make these small changes and we can model these small changes and be a model and a role model for other people to have effective communication, maybe we can increase the communication skills of those of us around as well.